It's good to see everyone out this morning. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Appreciate the songs that have been led thus far this morning, especially that last hymn that we just sang. I love, love that hymn. I love the message that it um, is, is, is teaching there. It's very instructive for us. And uh, really, that's what we're going to be focusing a lot on this morning. In Matthew chapter 28, in verse 18 beginning, this is the Great Commission. And this is a passage and, and uh, instruction that I would say most people in this room know very well. After Jesus has been put on the cross, he's beaten death, he's risen from the dead, and uh, he is showing many people his resurrected body. One of the last instructions he gives to his apostles, to his, those that would follow after him, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there is a pretty clear instruction, a very weighty instruction. The gravity of this can't be overstated. And because we are so familiar with it, I think that it can sometimes very easily become more common than uh, exciting. I think it can very easily become something that we just think of in passing because we, we know it so well, instead of deeply considering what Jesus is commanding us to do, all of us who are his disciples, all of us who want to follow after him. Why is this such an important message? Why is this such an important instruction? Because, specifically, the message itself is critical in the lives of me, you, and everyone else that lives on this earth. There's a short story that I wanted to share with you that I thought went along the thoughts of this morning very well. There was an older man that liked to go around to younger people and ask them, uh, you know, just, you know, what are you going to do? It's something we ask young people a lot. You know, what are you planning on doing with your life? What are you going to do, you know, as you get older and older? And so there was a man that liked to do this with young people. And he went to young, uh, one young man in particular, and he asked him, what are you going to do? And the young man said, well, I guess I'm going to finish high school. And the man said, then what? Young man thought for a little while and said, well, I might go and get a college degree. Old man again repeated, then what? I suppose I will get a career. Then what? Well, I think I'm going to go get married. Then what? probably get a family, try to have some kids, then what? Well, I guess I'll just work until I retire. What about then? I hope that I might have some grandkids at the end of my life. Then what? He considered that for a moment, and the young man finally said, breaking the silence, then I guess I'm going to die. Then what? You make him think, doesn't it? It's an important question. You think that's the end of the story, but it's not. Why is this such an important message? Because there is a then what when all is said and done. When we leave this earth, that's not the end of the story. There's going to be a then what. And we need to make sure that we are prepared for that moment. And not only that, but we need to make sure that we are prepared to give an account of this specific instruction in the Great Commission. How have I done with regards to this commandment, to this instruction that Jesus said is so important for us? 
Because there is going to be a then what? Not just for me, but for everyone. We are going to die. And that's just a fact. There's no escaping that. That's a reality that every single one of us share. That not one of us is unique to. We are going to find an end on this earth. And so there is a desperate need to focus more on evangelism. And what I mean by that is evangelism is very simply making a defense for the gospel. It is going out and preaching the word, preaching salvation of eternal life through Jesus Christ to everyone that will listen. And even to those that aren't going to listen. And I, I think it's good every now and then to think about the task that we've been given in evangelism, the commandment that we've been given to preach the gospel to the lost and to preach the gospel to all creation. And, and, and we really need to hone in on the gravity of that commandment, of the situation, and see how we're doing with regard to it. So first of all, as we think about this urgent message, as we think about the Great Commission, I want to first look at a few things. Over in 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, this is a very important passage. <clears throat> because when you think about evangelism and our responsibility towards it, a lot of times we just first and foremost think about, okay, well, of course, this is something that I need to do. I have a responsibility towards this. But I think it's helpful to, to think about why it's so important and maybe why we shouldn't just view it as only a chore, but something that I get to do, something that I want to do. And why do I ultimately want this? Because this is what God wants. Over in 2 Peter chapter 3 in verse 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So what is he saying? He's saying God has promised that judgment will come, and the justice will be divvied out, and he will have vengeance, as, as, as we see time and time again throughout the scriptures, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. The judgment is coming. He has promised it will. It's not something that we can just escape. And so, with that being said, at the end of this passage, what does Peter say? But God does not want the final word on someone's life to be eternal damnation. What he wants is that they meet that justice, not on judgment day unprepared, but they meet that justice at the cross. That's his ultimate desire. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 <clears throat> Timothy chapter 2 in verse 3 it says this is good and acceptable in the sight of, the, uh, of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth God does not want anyone to receive that eternal damnation God wants so badly for all of us to be saved now I tell you there's a lot of things that I want to say in this lesson and there's a lot of things that, that I even had to cut out of this lesson because I think this is so important in the lives of every Christian at least it should be but maybe the most important point is this first one this is what our father the creator our God wants for every single person every single soul to be saved and I just have to ask from the very beginning who, who does that include it includes everyone in this room Everyone outside of this room, everyone in our community, in our state, in our country, everyone in the world. To the farthest reaches of the world, God wants even that person to be saved. Now, this should be more than enough to convict us. This should be more than enough to, to cultivate a desire and a zealousness for us to go and spread that word so that all may, may be saved. This should be enough that God wants everyone to have salvation. But sometimes I'm afraid that it isn't enough. 
But before we get into that, I think another thing that we have to focus on is that this is one of our main responsibilities, being a part of the church, being a part of this body of the saved, the assembly of, of God, the church of Christ. He wants the church to be relentlessly active in this. This isn't something that he says, you know, this is, this is a chore that I want you to do every now and then. This is something that I want you to check off the list. He says, this is a lifestyle that I don't want you to ever... <laughs> be be vacant of in your life this is a lifestyle that i don't ever want you to uh, that i don't ever want to become foreign in your lives over in ephesians chapter 3 in verse 10 ephesians chapter 3 in verse 10 Paul talking about this mystery that had been that for ages had been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places and so as he's speaking about this mystery, and that is Christ in you, the hope of glory, as he would say in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27, and, and we could go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, where it says that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. That is what we are. That's what we're supposed to be. How can we be a pillar of truth if we are not actively engaging in a, spreading it and sharing it with others? This is one of our main responsibilities, one of our main duties, and it doesn't matter who you are. You don't... Evangelism is not just designated for the local preacher. Evangelism is designated for every single Christian, those who bear the name Christ. We are responsible. And that may be for the person who has an easier time talking to people, and that's even for the person that doesn't. We have a responsibility to share the gospel with everyone that we possibly can. And so are we being active in what we agreed to when we became Christians? Because let me tell you something, that is something you agreed to when you were baptized. You didn't, no one gets to come into this relationship, this covenant relationship saying, you know, I, I do want to be a Christian. I want to be saved, but I really don't like this part, God. I'm just not that social. I'm not that uh, interactive when it comes to the conversation. I don't like to be, um, you know, I don't like to, I don't have much skill for oratory. I just, I, I don't like this aspect of it. No one gets to come in and say, I want to be saved, but I don't want this. You take it all or you take none of it. This is an important job. It is our primary job to build up the body of Christ inside, and that means within the local congregation and outside with the community and everyone that we come across. So this is something that God wants. This is the church's, one of the church's main responsibilities. And ultimately, why should you be so concerned with this yourself? Because think about what God did for you. And ultimately, I think that this is the main hang-up. The, when we struggle with evangelism, we know that God wants all to be saved. When we struggle with evangelism, we know that this is the responsibility of the church. I think the main reason that we struggle with evangelism is because we have forgotten what God has done for us. He is asking us to just extend to others what he has so graciously, which means he didn't have to do this, but what he gave to us freely. He wants us to share that same message. And... and with all of this being the case, how can our desires not be aligned with God's on this? When he says, I want everyone that I have created in my image to have salvation, to have fellowship with me on earth and then in the reward. That's all I want. Just to, just to know what God desires, just to know what the will of the Lord is, that's a beautiful blessing that we take for granted often. But it's not just, it's not just 
you know, a very general sense of, of we, we can know his will, we can know, we can know that everything we do is authorized, but we need to understand that one of the things he desires is for a relationship with everyone. And not a relationship where he has created someone in his image, they have broken that image, they have corrupted that image, and now they have to spend an eternity in hell. It should move us that God wants so, uh, not desperately, but wants so badly, is for that eternal fellowship. Now, no matter what, if we don't have this desire, if, it's not a, if, if, if our thoughts and considerations are not aligned with God on this, ultimately it's because we don't appreciate what he's done for us. You just look at Paul's example in this. Over in Romans chapter 1 and verse 14, before we get to that very famous passage in verse 16, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, look at what he says just a couple verses prior in verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so for my part I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Would that we all had that same excitability about preaching the gospel, about teaching it. Would that we all had the same mindset that this is something that I am eager to do, that I am under obligation to do. I think that's the main thing. He viewed it as something he owed, and you know why? Because he did. We all owe God. We all owe him something because he gave us freely, that sacrifice of his son on the cross. And when we don't participate in this, when we don't work in one of the main functions of the church, what we are doing is showing God that this it just wasn't enough for me to go that far. That we are at least, to some degree, taking it for granted. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, he says something very sim similar, but more so along the lines of, how, how could I not? Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And why? Because he has this mindset that God has done so much for me. What else am I going to do? Over in 1 Timothy again, 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, and I love, love the way that Paul puts this. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more, abundant, was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now, when, whenever Paul talks about himself like this, that I am the chief of sinners, I, you know, sometimes people will look at that and say, I think, that there was a, I think that there was a few people that were worse than him in the span of history. And there, there probably were. But I think that's missing the point that Paul is making. That when he looks at what he had done to God, persecuting the church, ultimately breaking the, his law, and being the reason that Christ had to go up on that cross, that God manifested in the flesh had to taste death, when he looks at that, he says, I am the chief of sinners. I have done so much against God, and I have been the reason that he had to be put up on the cross, that he had to die for my sake. What else can I do? Do you view Christ's sacrifice the same way? Or is it kind of easy to just 
brush that off. Well, that's why we have a, a located preacher. Well, that's why we have certain men that are better at talking to others. Is that what I'm doing? Or am, am I taking the cross of Christ for granted? Or am I viewing it the same way Paul did with gratefulness in our hearts, only wanting to try and give back a portion of what he's given to us? Over in Romans chapter 5, very quickly in verse 6. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, just going along with this notion. Paul says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But not only that, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What does that mean? We were his enemy. And even then, even still, he decided to put himself, give up his spirit on the cross. You and I owe a great debt, not just Paul and not just the apostles. We do, I do, to Christ and to this message that he says he wants us to share. And I just think about that parable of the talents. We need to be so careful that what God has given to us, the responsibility that he has given to us, we don't take that for granted because remember what happened with the one talent man? He decided that he had been given this, uh, a portion of what uh, his, his master had and it was the least of all of the rest of the portions that he had given to the other servants. And so the other servants, they invest and they try to make sure that the master will have more when he comes back. But the one talent man, he buries it. He doesn't do anything with it. And what does the master say when he comes back? He blesses the other two, but this one, he says, you lazy servant, wicked why? Because he didn't do anything with it. He had been entrusted a great responsibility. And that's just with money. How much more precious, how much more valuable is the gospel which leads to eternal life? Are we being like the one talent man, burying it? Or are we trying to invest so that way we can bring more to God? Let's bring more to our master. Now, that, that's the main thing that we have to focus on when it comes to evangelism, that this is God's desire, that this is our responsibility. What else can we do, like Paul says, but preach the gospel? But now I want to turn our attention to looking at just doing, you know, perform, fulfilling this function of the church, making sure that we are evangelizing to the people around us. Because sometimes I think people look at this responsibility and say, you know, it's just... How are we really supposed to do this? How can we be successful in this? And I, what I want to do, thinking about that, is look at the first century Christians. Let's just look at the church in the first century when, when the church was established after the day of Pentecost. Let's see throughout Acts, and not all the way throughout Acts, but just a few passages throughout Acts of how active the church was in this in the first century. And as we were talking about in Hebrews chapter 11, they we're persecuted way more than we were, than we are today in the 21st century. And so as we compare ourselves to the first century church, let's ask, how are we doing in this? Because they, they were busy. They were active. They took this seriously. They did not stop when afflictions came up. They did not stop when things started to get hard. Frankly, I think a lot of the time they do better. They did a better job than we do with much easier circumstances. And so let's look at this. Over in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. Look at what it says there <coughs> about the church. When the church is established at the day of Pentecost in verse 41, it says, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Skipping down to verse 47. <coughs> Speaking about the Christians that had been saved, it says that they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
So what do we have from the very outset? On the first day, the first gospel sermon preached, look at the response. 3,000 souls added to the church. 3,000 souls saved. And not only that, it doesn't stop there, but at the very end of the chapter, what it says is, it just continued. God was adding to their number daily. Now, when you look at the kind of New Testament evangelism, the kind of very exciting evangelism you see there in, in uh, even just the beginning of Acts, I think sometimes people will come up and say things like, but you're, you're missing something here. They had miracles. They had apostles. We don't have those things anymore. And I would say, yes, granted. But ultimately, what were both of those always pointing to, whether it be the apostles or the miracles? It was always pointing back to his word. In fact, constantly throughout the book of Acts, what you find is that it never really leaves that focus. Whenever miracles were done, what was it do? It was designed to bring people to the gospel, to listen to what God had to say. And so, frankly, I think sometimes that's just nothing more than an excuse. We don't have miracles anymore, but what do we have? Something far more precious. The gospel that leads to eternal life. So, since we do have that word, let's not try to use any excuses and, and try to follow after this New Testament pattern we have in the first century. And I would just add to that before we move on. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that I'm going to preach a sermon and expect 3,000 souls to be saved. I'm not, I'm not saying that. It could happen, but I'm not necessarily anticipating that. But I would like to see 10 people baptized this year. Is that realistic? I think it is. I would like to see 100 souls baptized within the next 10 years. You think about that. That's just 10 souls per year. Less than a soul per month, kind of. <laughs> and, and I think that that's doable. I think that we can set our goals higher and not just be excited. And, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't rejoice when we have a baptism. That is a beautiful day. That's a beautiful moment. But sometimes I think that we are limiting God by thinking, that's really all we can do. Can we do more? Let's continue looking at the church here. Let's continue looking at their, their expectations, how I'd ne never think that they started limiting God, and how they were so zealous in this work over in Acts chapter 4 and verse 4. It doesn't just stay at 3,000 people, but very soon after the fact, after the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 4 in verse 4, it says, but many of those who had heard the message believed and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. That's 2,000 more souls. <laughs> and at the beginning, we're just starting with specific numbers. Soon, they're not even going to continue continually be giving the numbers because the, it just gets so great. They have to stop trying to quantify it with numbers. They just start saying things like, now it's multitudes. Now it's just a large number, which we'll see in just a moment. But this is not that long of a time since Acts chapter 2. Just two chapters after, and already there are 2,000 more souls. What does that show about how they were spending their time? More on that in just a moment, but over in Acts chapter 5 and verse 14. Acts chapter 5 and verse 14. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. Now, notice that this is right after a very terrifying scene of judgment. You recall that here, uh, not only does it say that... <laughs> More people were being added, but it says multitudes. But this is after even witnessing the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. You remember that story where they try to lie to the Holy Spirit, they try to lie to the people of God and say that they gave more that, that, uh, than they actually did. And so because they did that, because they sinned, God puts them to death. 
And it says that great fear came upon all who witnessed that. But then right after the fact, as we just read, it says now multitudes were being brought in. What does that tell you about evangelism? Sometimes people come to the gospel message that they have grown up with their whole lives, or maybe that they have been converted recently, but they see some of the difficult messages that the gospel has, and, and they look at that and say, this message is just too harsh. No one's going to want to hear this. Who would want to accept this? Well, first of all, you did, so I'm not exactly sure what that question even means, but, but let, me just, let me just think about that for a moment. This message is too harsh, and we will have to talk about judgment. There are going to be things, moments where we have to have serious conversations about hell and where everyone is headed without God and the things that will lead us to hell and keep us out of the kingdom of heaven. Granted, we're going to have to have those kinds of conversations, but look at these people in Acts chapter 5. Multitudes were being added to the church even in the midst of such a terrifying message that judgment is coming upon sinners. It didn't stop them. All it did all it seemed to do at least was encourage them even more, motivate them even more to do more in this work. Acts chapter 5 and verse 28, later on in the chapter, the, the, the apostles just continually preach the gospel. They get in trouble for preaching the gospel. And, and they've been told by uh, the, the rulers at the time, the Sanhedrin, that they, they were, need to stop preaching. But look at what even the enemies of Christ admit here in Acts chapter 5 and verse 28. They say, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet they have done what? You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. What does he say? Just in three chapters, they filled all Jerusalem with this teaching of Christ. Not a long span of time. And why was it? Because they were constantly focusing on bringing people to him. They were constantly focusing on spreading this message as much as possible. Later on in the chapter of Acts chapter 5, it says in verse 42, even after they had been released and, and you know, rebuked again by these men and threatened even more not to preach the name of Christ, it says in verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. It didn't matter. All of these extra efforts that the enemies of the cross were putting on them, threatening them. It, in, in verse 41, what does it say? They rejoiced in these sufferings. They rejoiced in their afflictions. Not because they found pleasure in pain, but because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Suffer shame for his name. That's beautiful. It only made them more zealous to go out and spread the gospel message further and further. They were spending their time constantly preaching the word. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, this is kind of a, a side point, but in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, this is right after the persecution begins that we even meet Saul of Tarsus, who is kind of, uh, it almost seems like spearheading this, this persecution against the Christians. But after it says that Saul was ravaging the church, he was entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and he put them in prison. In verse 4, what does it say? Therefore... Those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. I've said this before, but if you have to go and if you have to flee persecution, do you generally speak and proclaim loudly wherever you go to find refuge about the very thing that just sent you away from your home? No, what you generally do is you kind of remain quiet about it. You're just trying to not turn too many heads. You're trying to escape people's notice. But these people, that wasn't their thought. Their thought was, I want people to hear about this message. 
And so they would bring more attention onto themselves, not in a selfish way, not in a self-righteous way, but they were trying to bring more attention to the cross, to Christ. And it spread to Samaria and it spread further and further. Well, I would just say with regards to that, because this is something that they never really let go of, this is how they spent all of their time. There was a a very sobering um, story that I heard not too long ago. It was a preacher that I know very well. His neighbor, who he had been trying to evangelize to for so long, he died just very suddenly. He actually went in, and he's the one that saw him and had to call the police and the ambulance, and he was pronounced dead before they left the house. But it was something that just really hurt him because he had been trying and trying to evangelize to this man, and he wasn't completely just hating the gospel message. It was just a work in progress. And it affected him. And he is a man, it's Brother Ken McDaniel, he is a man that many people know as someone who is, is very active in personal evangelism. And, and he does such a good job in that area. But even he had to deal with the fact that someone just would not accept Christ. And this made him think, because he's constantly trying to think about, what can I do in personal evangelism? What can I do more? What can I do better? And he said to a room full of preachers that want to do more and better at evangelism, he said, just remember, the next time that you start thinking about personal evangelism, that two people die every second. And so the next time that you're sitting there in your office or sitting there in your homes or sitting in a room constantly talking about what can we do, two, four, six, Eight, ten, five seconds, and ten souls lost their lives. And chances are, most of them were not Christians. Time is running out. The judgment is coming. What are we doing? How are we spending our time? So that way, there won't be so many souls that are lost in the judgment. We need to be spending our time in this, with the same level of of fortitude and and same level of zeal as the Christians were in the first century. Well, over in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, and we're coming to the end of this list, Acts chapter 11 and verse 19, we can't go through everything throughout Acts, but just wanted to note a few things here, but specifically in verse 19 of Acts chapter 11, it says, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, as we were just reading about in Acts chapter 8, they made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to the Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. So once more, it's not just saying... Here's 3,000 souls, here's 5,000 souls. Now it's saying that these multitudes are multiplying. Now it's just a considerable number. Now it's just a large number. And why? Because they would not stop preaching the gospel. They are working so hard that they stop needing to write numbers down. Now it's just, here are more people being saved. And guess what? There's going to be more next week. And there's going to be more the week after that. Not because we're just, not because we're just, you know, forcing, you're just shoving people into the water, but we are teaching them the foundational lesson of the good news of Jesus Christ. And people are being truly converted. And I would say it doesn't just stop there. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, at the very beginning of, of the, the, this book, 
before the church is established in Acts chapter 2, Jesus is still with his apostles and look at the, the instruction he gives to them. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. We've already seen about how it filled all Jerusalem, how it filled all Judea. We even saw in Acts chapter 8 how it spread to Samaria. And so all the while you see in this instruction at the beginning of Acts, you see very quickly how the apostles and the rest of the disciples of Christ are spreading that word just the way Christ had said. Now, we saw it in Samaria, but can we really say that it's possible, that it is even feasible to spread it to the remotest parts of the earth? Well, this is what Christ said, and God doesn't command us the impossible, but look over in Colossians chapter 1. As Paul is writing to the church in Colossae here, Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> look at what it says in verse 5 of Colossians chapter 1. Paul says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it is, has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Skip down to verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So did it reach the remotest parts of the earth? Yes, it did. And you want to know what's interesting about that? It took a, maybe around 35 years to reach all of creation. Now you ponder that for a moment. All it took was three decades for them to spread the gospel and have all of the globe, all of creation, hear this good news. When we think about the evangelism of the first century church, I just want to ask again, how are we doing in this? In 35 years, give or take, what started as a tiny group in an upper room spread not only from an insignificant city like Jerusalem, but spread like wildfire throughout the world. You want to know how? It's because they obeyed Jesus when he said, go. And they didn't try to limit him in any possible way. They incorporated it into their lives deeply. And secondly, they didn't stop. They worked every single day. They, they really did take this seriously. They didn't just treat it as a chore. And so finally, I want to come back to our thoughts at the very beginning of the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. What did Jesus say that we were supposed to be doing? Or just... Very quickly, when he says to the end of the age, what does that imply? But that this goal, this mission is never ending, at least while you still have breath. So the question is, are you still breathing? If I am, what does that mean that my goal, my work is for every single person, for every single Christian to evangelize? And that means everyone in this room, not just one or two, not just a select few. Every single Christian in this room has a responsibility in this. Have you been doing as well as the first century Christians did? I tell you, as I've been studying this this week, this really convicted me. I can do better. We can do better. We can re-emphasize re re and reinvigorate our efforts to look like more so the first century church in their evangelism. When, asking the question of not only when, but where to all nations. That is every person that we meet. It's not just picking and choosing who we might talk to. You know, when, as, we're, as we're thinking about this, is there a time limit on this? No, the clock doesn't run out until judgment day comes. 
How are we doing in that? Do you have family who need the gospel? Do you have family who have not yet become Christians? This includes parents, a spouse, our kids. This could be anybody, a cousin. Is there someone that we are close to that we are not preaching to? And maybe it's because I just really don't want to cause any issues between, you know, it's family, so it would be kind of weird around Thanksgiving or Christmas if I start pushing this on them. Well, do we really believe what God has said here? Do we remember that this is God's desire? Outside of family, do you interact with anyone who needs the gospel? Friends, co-workers, neighbors, and and I forget, who is my neighbor? (laughs) We talked about that on Wednesday. It's everyone that I come across. Am I sharing it with my neighbor? One of the most convicting hymns I think I've ever sung through, that we've ever sung here. You ever, you remember, you never mentioned him to me? In fact, if I could just read through the lyrics of that hymn very quickly. It says, when in the better land and before the bar we stand, how deeply grieved our souls will be. If any lost one there should cry in deep despair, you never mentioned him to me. A few sweet words may guide a lost one to, may guide a lost one to the side or turn sad eyes on Calvary. So work as days go by that yonder none may cry. You never mentioned him to me. Can you imagine, especially when it's someone that you love and care for so deeply like a family member, like a spouse, like a child. Can you imagine judgment day coming, looking over and seeing them not on the side of God, but on the side of those who are going to be cast into the lake of fire for an eternity and remembering all of the moments that you thought, I really don't want to cause any trouble. It's just going to be an uncomfortable conversation. What's going to be more uncomfortable? To burn in hell for eternity. And imagine the deep despair, as the hymn says, that we would feel if we saw that and we had the capability to turn them aside. Are we doing as well as we could be? How are we supposed to be doing this? Well, we are supposed to be doing this through the gospel, nothing else. Are you sharing it at all? Are you taking it wherever you go, just like the Christians did in the first century? It didn't matter. To work, fleeing from affliction, every single place that they went, they were prepared to share it. How are we doing in that? And ultimately, coming back to our first thought, why? How could we not? Why are we spreading the gospel? Because this is what God wants everyone to respond to, just like you did. Are you taking the cross of Christ for granted and not sharing it? Or are you like Paul looking at this as saying, I have an obligation, what else could I do? We have a job to do here. Let's make sure that we are getting to work. And there's so many other things that we could say, but frankly, I think that this is at least a good start to the conversation, a good start for, for a series of considerate thoughts on how we are doing in evangelism, in spreading the gospel message to others. Maybe you've never responded to that message in the first place. Have you done everything that Jesus says you need to do to be a part of his kingdom, to be one of his disciples, one of those that will not receive the punishment in the lake of fire, but those that will be in heaven with him for eternity? You have to be willing to hear everything that he says, not just say, I think I'll pick and choose. You have to be faithful in what he says. That means living in it every single day, never letting it go, as we see with the first century Christians. 
getting rid of everything that's going to keep us from this goal of being in heaven. Make a confession on that belief and be baptized into his death, into the newness of life that only he can provide. This is the gospel message. Are you subject to that invitation this morning? If you are, let us help you in any, by any means. You come forward, let your need be known as we stand and as we sing.